I am a girl of constant sorrow When we get to Joan Baez, the reason Joan Baez signed with Vanguard was because they had done the Weavers during the blacklist. And I mean, Joan Baez could have had Columbia. Yeah, she could have been Dylan before Dylan, like their blow up. Wait, now let's be careful. (laughs) Uh, Baez was so much bigger than Dylan ever dreamed of being in terms of record sales. There's not even a comparison. Joan Baez had the number one LP in the United States and had three LPs on the top 100 for the year by the time she had her third LP. Dylan never had a number one LP until his greatest hits album. Dylan was not a major selling artist. Joan Baez changed American music. But that Joan Baez record on Vanguard really reinvented what an album could do. Because, I mean, the Weavers record, you know, it was a nice record. People were, you know, it was it was pleasant for the people who liked that. But the Baez record was the number one LP in the United States. That really was the record that invented the folk revival as a commercial proposition and made everybody think completely differently Because, I mean, the idea that you could just sit one woman with a guitar in front of a microphone with a small label with no budget and have the best-selling LP in the United States blew everybody's mind. No one thought that was a... I mean, it, it had not occurred to anybody that that could happen. I mean, that's why she ended up on the cover of Time magazine. Because, I mean, the entire record industry suddenly went, what the hell was that? And ultimately, that has like, yeah, incredibly far ranging implications, uh, you know, across the entire music industry. Oh, yeah. I mean, ever since then, the idea that you could just sit someone with a guitar in front of a microphone and make a record. I mean, I don't know that it's ever again. I'm not sure there's ever again been a number one record, much less the top selling album for the entire year. That was just one person sitting with a guitar in front of a microphone. But yeah, no, it opened the door for everything that came after it. I am a girl of constant sorrow. I've seen troubles all my days. I'm going back. That's the voice of Elijah Wald, folk and blues historian and writer, talking about just how big of a deal Joan Baez actually was in the early 60s. As you might have guessed by now, This fourth episode of this season of the VMP Anthology podcast is devoted to John Baez, whose self-titled Vanguard debut is the third album in your VMP Anthology box devoted to Vanguard and the folk explosion. It's hard to put into context now, but when Baez hit the folk scene in 1959, she was like a one-woman atom bomb, the biggest star the scene had ever seen by a considerable margin. Where the Weavers could put a single on the charts seemingly randomly, 
Maya's self-titled debut was a chart behemoth, to date still the best-selling record in Vanguard history. Baez's rise was and is unprecedented in folk music history, outside of her singing partner, Bob Dylan. In the span of about two years, she went from being a college kid playing open mics in Boston to being on the cover of Time magazine as the face of the folk movement. It was a remarkable turn of events for the daughter of a scientist who grew up wanting to be Pete Seeger. Her debut remains one of the best examples of the ideal folk album. It's almost exclusively just Baez and a guitar as she was worried that having a second mic and a second guitar was, quote, too commercial, ultimately acquiescing to the Solomon Brothers during the production of the album on a few of the songs. A mix of the hottest songs on the folk circuit at the time and traditional British ballads, Joan Baez still sounds perfect 60 years after its release. To help put Baez in proper context, I talked with Elizabeth Thompson, who you heard briefly in episode one, who in 2020 published The Last Leaf, a biography of Baez that culminates in her final shows before Baez retired a few years ago. Thompson was an immense Baez fan in the late 60s and early 70s, and obviously through to today, and has interviewed Baez a number of times over the years, including some interviews at the end of Baez's career. Here, Thompson checks in from her home in London on why she wrote her book on Baez, how Joan became famous, her debut album and being on the cover of Time magazine, and her relationship with Bob Dylan in the early 60s. There is a house in New Orleans They call it the rising sun And it's a bit of the ruin The obsession has never left me and I think it's the combination of the voice, obviously, and once I began reading quite widely, it was, you know, the realization that, you know, she'd been at this crucial point in our history in the 60s, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, but that she had huge principles. She was a real social activist. She had commitment. Uh, she was prepared to go to jail for her beliefs. She really believed in something and stood for something, and I think that really appealed to me as a teenager because, you know, mostly it's quite hard to have that kind of commitment. And the 70s in the UK was you know, not a great era to be sort of doing much. But, I, you know, the, I just thought she was a really extraordinary figure. And I still think she's a pretty extraordinary figure. And I've met her quite a lot of times now, so I'm pleased to be able to say that because they always say you shouldn't meet your idols. This has been a lifelong obsession for you. But what pushed you, you know, to turn that obsession into a book? Well, I mean, I, I have interviewed her quite a few times. And uh, sometimes it was, you know, there was a period in the 80s when... Editors were just not interested in hearing about it. You know, who cares, you know, what she's doing? I mean, people were not interested in it because she had a period in her career in the 80s where she considered getting up, getting, giving up, you know. The odd kind of specialist magazine would occasionally take a feature and I'd get to see her and I was at the odd press conference. But it was it was quite difficult. And then I persisted. You know, no, I mean, none of the music I was interested in was fashionable when I was first making my way in journalism. But I started writing, you know, on folk and other stuff in, in the 80s and 90s and then I, I got asked by Mojo if I'd go to New York and report on the Ridden and Bell sessions at the bottom line in Greenwich Village, now sadly gone of course. So I was there for two of the four nights, interviewed her and that was the beginning of her renaissance really. I mean it was a very remarkable renaissance. Her voice was still fantastic in that period, I mean really beautiful and rich. So 
you know, things things generally began to look more interesting. I mean, there was, I think people became generally more interested in acoustic, you know, what should we call it, Americana, acoustic music, um, mm-hmm. singer-songwriters in that period. You know, we've been through punk and everything else and people were more receptive. So my interest persisted. I came to know Robert Shelton, the New York Times critic who'd written about her and, of course, written that famous first review on Bob Dylan. I met him as I graduated in 1979-80. So I, you know, in a sense, knowing, I mean, I met him because of my interests. And, of course, knowing him, he was living in London, finishing his dinner book, knowing him deepened my interest. I mean, first of all, I thought, wow, how amazing is this? <laughs> you know, I'm hanging out with this guy who hung out with Dylan and Myers in the village in 1962, you know. But so, you know, like everything, I, I learn more research. And then, of course, the digital age enabled me to find much more stuff and things, mm-hmm. and things came out for the first time. So on and on went the obsession that I had a bit more money to collect. You know, I always hoped that one day I would be able to write a book about her and no one was, I think I suggested something for her 75th birthday. I think I suggested something earlier. No one was interested. And then finally, when she announced her farewell to a, a publisher with whom I'd worked, said, would you like to do a biography of Joan Bias? I said, yes, absolutely. So, you know, the constraints were that it was not going to be a terribly long book. In fact, originally it was going to be an illustrated book. And, and the fact that it was ready to go to press as COVID descended was what changed it into what I think is a much better format, actually, a regular book with some illustrations. But it could have had a bit more length. So I was I was thrilled to be able to do it. it. Gave me an excuse to go to concerts in the UK, obviously in the States where I was. And I was at present at her final concert in Madrid, July, two years ago. I took, in fact, I my sister who was living in Malaga, by then not in Costa Rava, in Malaga. She came with me. I said, Would you like to come? And she said, Oh, I'm not interested actually. Anyway, in the end, I said, look, I'm I'm inviting you. It kind of completes the circle. It was your record that started it, you know. In, in uh-huh. Boss's guitar, that's you know. So anyway, she came up from Malaga. I flew in from from London, and we went to the concert, which was fantastic. Actually, it was a really, really. I was really pleased to be there. It was a very good. It wasn't the best of the fairly fairly well concerts that I've seen, but it was very emotional. And the final kind of dance song on the exit from the stage was was very special. Very, very special. The audience in Spain was very interested in her. She did a sort of, you know, the tour went went in and out of Spain and France and, and Italy and Germany for the last uh, few weeks. Uh, and she processed through various Spanish festivals into Madrid, a long drive. I mean, it was interesting, but long, a 400-kilometer-or-mile drive, I think, into Madrid overnight, and then, you know, it was going to be the last concert, so the tour bus went, you know, she had to, she walked, the light. it was fascinating, the whole, it's a bit like a politician losing office, the kind of, all the, all the paraphernalia of the life on the road went, she told me, you know, the tour bus went, so she walked to the hotel, which in fact was the same small hotel that I booked us into right by the opera house, which she said. So it was nice and it was it was very special. Let's go back to sort of Joan Baez's beginnings, because, you know, you start in the book sort of in her early days. And I guess a thing that was interesting to read was just, you know, I guess, why do you think or how did you think that this daughter of, of a famous scientist somehow ends up this like famous folk singer? I mean, I knew her. she was the daughter of quite a celebrated scientist. I didn't, in fact, realise how celebrated until quite later on. And I think most people didn't. I mean, it was only when he died and there was the odd obituary, not as much as there should have been about his contributions to X-ray microscopy, I suppose is the word, is it, and so on. I and mean, he was very eminent in his own right. It is, and, and I, you know, I found traces of, of both her father and her grandparents in Brooklyn when I looked. It wasn't, you know, the trail was quite easy to find. I mean, it is, it is extraordinary. I think you can't, I mean, of all the people that came out of, of the scene, you know, Judy Collins, um, 
Dylan, all of them. I suppose she comes from them in a way the most intellectual family, and I'm sure. I'm sure her dad would have, you know, she enrolled in Boston, Boston University for five minutes. I'm sure her father really wanted to be a serious student, wanted one of his daughters to be a serious student. Her mother was a bit more alternative, I think. But, you know, it's, it's the, Judy Collins once described looking at the Byers clan together at Newport as being out of Henry James, and I could sort of see what she means. And, I, you know, I think the family influence is very clearly there. You know, the fact that her scientist father, who was sort of offered things by the military industrial complex, if you like, decided he wasn't happy with science being used for offensive and defensive purposes. And it was Joan Senior, big Joan, Joan Byers' mother, who suggested that they go to Quaker meeting, which they did. And the fact they went as a family till she said, you know, we went as a family until she moved out of the house at 18. And I don't think she's ever completely left that behind. So, you know, there's a slight, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of people are Quakers in the States, more so than in the UK. I think it's, a, it's a, not surprising me, it's a very profound influence. And of course, it's one of the great cultures of dissent, isn't it? It fits with Thoreau and all that, all that. And, you know, clearly all that has been very important to her and its structure her life. And it's, you know, governed how she's lived her musical life. I mean, she talked about how it was her... You know, her parents were despairing that she was liking rhythm and blues and so on in the late 50s. And it was her auntie and her parents who took her to see a Pete Seeger concert, hoping that she would she would like it. And she described it as a kind of vaccine it took. I mean, she, she loved what she heard from Pete Seeger. And, you know, within a couple of years, of course, she was on the road with him. But, you know, she saw him as a 16-year-old schoolgirl when she was still on, on, you know, when they were still on the West Coast. And she fell in love with all that. And then, of course, there was a debtor, um, the voice of the civil rights movement, Harry Belafonte, of course, who you know, one thinks of as being, I suppose, you know, Brits would probably think of him as a light entertainer, but he was a crucial figure in the civil rights movement, very brave, flew down to the South with you no know, stashes of dollars in his case, suitcase to fund the civil rights summer in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she she was deeply influenced by all those, you know, they all, she listened to those people and was immediately influenced by them and, and felt at one with them and worked with them and made a common cause. So, you know, the, the path, her career path, both spiritually, if you like, I don't know if that's, I mean, I think she is a spiritual person, but that's perhaps not the word she used, she used in this context. But, you know, she knew what she wanted to do as a musician and she knew what she didn't want to do. You know, she didn't want to sign with, with Columbia. She didn't want the big... The, the fancy stuff. She wasn't interested in the glitz and the glamour. She liked the kind of the dirty rug and the broken water cooler, as she put it, in the Manhattan Towers ballroom that was Vanguard's recording studio. That's what she liked. She didn't like the flash. She was intimidated when Albert Grossman, wooing her to become a client, took her to see CBS at Columbia. She, did, she wasn't comfortable. So she's lived her life, you know, the influence of her family and and all the things she read and learned when she was growing up, which included hearing Martin Luther King speak when she was still at school. That's, you know, her life has been all of a piece. And it still is. Even she's given up singing, but she's painting, and she's using her visual art for social purposes. So she's, she's had an entirely consistent life and career. Mm-hmm. And she really goes from being that 16-year-old kid at a Pete Seeger concert to sort of being like this superstar in a very, very short amount of time. And I think a remarkable thing that I picked up on in your book was like, that really didn't change her where, you know, you think of like 
other, you know, contemporary musicians who go from being a teenage prodigy to being immensely famous. The temptation is to sell out instantly, right? Like, like you sell out and you get as famous as possible. And she really adhered to that philosophy in a way that was like, you know, as, as remarkable in the, as the music in some ways. Yes. I mean, I suppose we have to remember that the, the, the music business wasn't yet a business, I don't think, or it wasn't an industry. I right. mean, it was enough of a business for, for Grossman to be taking at CBS. But in general, you know, I think it, I always think it, it's, it was Woodstock in 1969 that kind of created a music industry. It made it a real business. You know, the money men came in. That's when they really saw what they could make from it. And that was the point of Vanguard. Of course, it was about commitment. They had Paul Robeson, they had the Weavers, they had the debtor. So she wasn't going to be, you know, she wasn't going to be influenced by that. I mean, yes, she went out and bought a um, fancy car a few years later for cash. But that, you know, maybe that was her only serious kind of rock star's indulgence, really. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, she wasn't into, whereas, of course, you know, people who get famous overnight now, usually on TV talent shows in both our countries, or, you know, where they are, they're having, you know, they've got some, the Praetorian Guard around them, they've got fancy houses, they've got globe-trotting lifestyles and huge amounts of money, you know, and not that much talent to go with it some, sometimes. And she had a, you know, prodigious talent. Mm-hmm. And she, she recognised that. I mean, she recognised it was a gift, which it is, and it was a gift to be looked after and maintained, as she puts it. And I think she's she's used it very well. And I would be fascinated. I mean, I the one person I would have loved to have interviewed, but he was very frail. I tried actually quite a few years ago, Maydard Solomon, um, who of course produced her all his albums. Mm. And he hasn't talked very much about working with her. But obviously it was a very successful relationship because he, of course, was a, you know, Vanguard was was a classical um, label, first of all. I mean, that's what it was. Its first release was something of Bach. I can't remember what it was now. Cantata, mm-hmm. I think. So it was, you know, there was a serious, there was serious intent on both sides. So to talk a little bit about her debut, and I I guess volume two as well, a thing, you know, reading your book, especially and hearing earlier, is the amount of English ballads that really end up on her early albums. Where does that come from for her? I I, I mean, I guess it was stuff she heard around Harvard. And she learned, I mean, she said she wasn't one for, for reading that much. She listened to material. I mean, there were all sorts of people who the people we don't really think about very much, Nelson Jean Ritchie, Richard Dyer Bennett, John Jacobs Knight. There were people doing all sorts of things, you know, rather traditional in a, in a different sort of sense, folk singers. So I imagine she learned wherever, you know, from whatever she could get her hands on. And she said she has a particular, she'd always felt a particular affinity with the, the English and Scottish ballads. Perhaps that's because, you know, her mother was born in Scotland, but the, her grandparents were, were English. So there's that Anglo-Scottish ancestry on the one side, which so perhaps it's in her blood. I mean, she is apparently descended from the Dukes of Chandos, who of course were Handel's great patron, the Duke of Chandos, which is interesting, that's her middle name. But so she has that English, you know, deep in our DNA, we all have things, I suppose, that, you know, that sort of shape us. But she was particularly, you know, the child ballads, which of course have been collected hundred or so years, I can't remember the date, hundred or so years earlier by Francis James Child, who was a Shakespeare scholar at Harvard. You know, he, he collected the ballads that were, were called the child ballads that include you know, endless versions of uh, things like Barbara Allen's or the Matty Groves. And she she made those her own. She recorded a lot of the child ballads throughout her career quite late on. And some of them remained in her concert re- repertoire late on as well. And certainly they featured on 
on the first two albums, but so on the first album was the Spanish you know, mm-hmm. material with or Spanish mixing with Alpresa Romero Nuevo, and there was you know the, I think All My Trials is a Bahamanian folk song. So it was you know it was it was you know it was despite the fact it sounded very English in many ways it was pretty international. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think she's somebody like the Weavers. We have uh, live at Carnegie Hall is one of the albums in this box set. And, you know, one of the things that's remarkable about the Weavers is just the song selection is like really yeah. that's maybe their greatest talent is like yes. knowing which songs are the best. And it feels like Joan Baez had a lot of that too when you look at her albums. It's like there isn't any song she's doing that you're like, I don't know about this one. Like she is like a really great song selector in addition to being an incredible performer. Yeah, she is. And it would be interesting to have known from Maynard to what extent he might have guided her or whether it was, you know, just her kind of fine, you know, absorbing stuff like a sponge and recording. I mean, the fact that he, you know, over from 1961 to 63, he made a whole lot of live recordings. Obviously, the fruit of those were between concert albums and then the very early Joan, which came out much later with off cuff. You know, he obviously had a desire to sort of set down more or less everything that was in her repertoire at that period of time with a view to a live album, I suppose, but perhaps with a view just to documenting, perhaps almost in a way that, you know, the Smithsonian recorded people. I mean, maybe that was part of the part of the, the grand plan, the intellectual plan, if you like. But and, and of course, on going back to the Weavers, who you mentioned, and of course, Fred Hellerman played second guitar on the first album. She wasn't very keen to have a second guitarist; she thought it was rather commercial. But she was persuaded, and I think the the addition of, of Fred Hellerman is pretty exciting, actually. I mean, the awesome. I mean, so so she, so Joan herself had said that she stood at the Manhattan Towers Hotel, was on a, a dingy block of Broadway between Seventy Sixth and Seventy Seventh Street, and it was where Gordon Jenkins recorded. And on certain nights of the week, it was used for bingo. So she stood on the dirty rug with the broken water cooler and recorded. She sang into three microphones, two on the outside for stereo and one in the center for mono in those old days, which some of us remember. And there was a fourth mic for Fred Hellerman's second guitar. So there were 19 songs that were laid down over three days. Mary Hamilton, the, one of the great Scottish ballads that we were just speaking of from the 19th century child ballad anthology that was set down in, in one take. And I tracked down the Swiss-born engineer, Mark Orbit, who worked with her, worked generally with Vanguard, but certainly worked with Joan on all those early albums, mm-hmm. certainly through the in-concerts. I'm not sure, I think, the, not sure what the last one was he worked on, but certainly he was a bit vague because he's 90 now, but he had to talk. So I, I asked him what he remembered, and he liked Maynard Solomon. Mark Orbit was a classically trained musician, as well as being Vanguard's chief engineer. So he followed around the southern campuses when he was recording the concert albums. And I said, what it was like, you know, what was it like to work with her? And he said, well, you know, it's, it's a long time ago, so I'm a bit sketchy. But he said, well, I'm quoting here, he said, what I remember vividly is how impressed I was by her sincerity, a total unphoniness compared with other celebrities of the day. Working with her was always delightful on the road as well as in the studio or concert hall setups. Her voice in all registers was extremely microphone friendly and did not require any electronic manipulations such as limiters or equalization. Joan required minimal editing as most of her output was one take versions. That's quite extraordinary for you know, a young, someone who's in the studio for the first time. To be that young and be that confident and nailing it in one take is remarkable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Something else you know, that I didn't really realize until I read your book was that in the early 60s, before Dylan becomes, you know, the the Bob Dylan, 
she is really the face of folk music that, you know, she's profiled in Time magazine. And it's yes. like, it's hard to put into context now, now that, you know, Dylan takes up so much of the oxygen of, of like remembering that folk scene, like just how huge a deal Joan Baez was, you know, that like she's on the cover of Time magazine, which is like the biggest magazine in America. Like that's just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It is extraordinary. I mean, like, you know, and when I, I don't think I, I certainly didn't realize at the time, you know, that is to say in the, in the early 70s, like how important. I mean, I began to realize quite quickly. But, you know, what's what's disappointing still is that the fans, the hardcore Dylan fans, still do not want to acknowledge what a huge role she played in his career. I mean, some, some of them do, but many of them absolutely do, know, do not. You know, she comes in, I was just looking at some stuff on a Facebook page today, she comes in for some vitriolic criticism about her voice, about being a hanger-on. People remember the scenes in Don't Look Back where he behaves very badly to her, of course, and a scene in London that she admits she should have left. But, you know, it is extraordinary. I mean, in 1960, she does two TV programmes out of New York with Robert Herridge, the quite celebrated arts programmes, Camera 3 and A Pattern of Words and Music. And at least one of those, Dylan, who was still Robert Zimmerman, a student in your hometown, Minneapolis, saw her and he said she was wicked it was like a siren from a greek island and he said you know relatively recently i can't remember whether it was in the documentary about her or whether it was in no direction home the documentary about him he said that he felt he had to get to new york to meet her as well as meeting woody guthrie who of course was you know in hospital not in hospital then but you know, very sick and she was, you know, she was already, she'd already made a couple of albums when Dylan still struggled. So she's able, you know, just as Bob Gibson introduced her at Newport 1959, which is the, the moment that her career takes off. She's she's recorded a little album in Boston. She hasn't yet signed with Vanguard. She hasn't yet you know, signed with her manager, Maddie Greenhill, who will look after the first 10 years of her career. So she's introduced, you know, at, at Newport 59, the very first Newport Folk Festival by Bob Gibson sings those amazing two songs, you know, when we're crossing Jordan River and Virgin Mary, two really contrasting songs. One, the ethereal Virgin Mary and the kind of really up-tempo kind of call and response of, of crossing Jordan River. Extraordinary. I mean, it's a shame there's no film footage of that. So we only have the recordings, which Vanguard, of course, did, the Newport Folk Festival. That was, their, that was their stuff to record. Extraordinarily exciting performance. And she must have been pretty scared. She said that 30,000 was the biggest crowd she'd ever seen. Amazing. So that kind of establishes her. So by the time her first Vanguard album is released, you know, people kind of know who she is. She's already been mentioned in the New York Times. So she's begun to do, uh, she was to sing out benefits, I think, in, in New York. And then she, you know, she does the town hall. She does the, the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. You know, she's beginning to get a name. And Dylan's, you know, barely scuffling around the clubs for dimes, you know. And, of course, they're introduced at Gertie's. She's brought down to see him. And immediately she's recording, you know, he says, he's always said that um, she wanted to record a song from Woody and he wouldn't let her. I don't, I don't know whether that anecdote is true. You know, he said she didn't know Woody. It wasn't her song to sing, whatever. But, you know, if you think of all those songs with God on Our Side, which, of course, they would sing together at Newport, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right, you know, Me Baby, you know, the whole lot of, songs that she recorded very early on I mean really establishing him as a songwriter you know the in concert albums which included with God on Our Side and Twice you know they were out in the stores but when Dylan was 
was a local curio, really. So she did make him, and then she brought him not just at Newport, 63, where, you know, they they closed the set together. I mean, they appeared several times together. They'd also done something smaller on the West Coast, but Newport's the moment that everyone remembers, partly because it was recorded. And then, of course, she takes him out as a guest on her concert tour, so it includes Forest Hills, includes West Coast appearances, again, giving him a platform, singing his songs, singing songs together, allowing him to sing on his own, which, and that was not something that pleased the people who'd come to see her necessarily. You know, they'd come to see Joan Myers. They didn't want to see this scruffy kid who couldn't really sing. You know, they'd come to hear her beautiful voice. So she she gave him a jet-propelled start. You can't deny that. You know, you can be a Dylan nut and, you know, not really be interested in any other musician as some of those people are, but you cannot, you know, if you've got half a brain, you cannot deny the significant role she played in launching his career. That's not to say, and she would never say, that he would not have become celebrated without her. But she certainly pushed him forward. She gave him a ready-made stage, you know, big stages, you know, not a little club. She gave him Forest Hills. Right. You know? Yeah, she's so, not just taking him on club dates. She's taking him on some yeah. of the biggest of venues in the '60s. Yeah, yeah. and she talked. You know, she talked about him. You know, this kid's important. Listen to him, this great song by Young. So, you know, on there. You know, when you hear the college, you can hear it. A saying, he's an important singer. He matters. You know, listen to him. She was practically a PR agent in that sense. I mean, only because she really believed in him. Mm-hmm. But it was boy, was it a big push? I mean, better than better than any PR agent could have done. Yeah, and then, you know, the fact that she's on the cover of Time is sort of forgotten now, <laughs> you know, that, yeah, she is. is the face. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Time wrote about the folk girls. I mean, they mentioned Judy Collins and, and Bonnie Dobson, but, you know, Byers was was absolutely emblematic. And she and Dylan, of course, both sang at the March on Washington in 1963, but she was she was a role model for, for young women in the States and ultimately everywhere. There were all sorts of books written uh, book was most famously the Woodstock census where they talk about, you know, they ask people who they were influenced by in the sixties, you know, obviously Kennedy. So. But bias is way up there, but more with women than men, obviously. But she's, you know, she's cited as a huge influence. And there are lots of guys who would say that, you know, she got them thinking about the political stuff. I mean, obviously talk to them later on, talk to the kind of draft resistance movement. A lot of people would say, well, you know, you went to a concert and she talked about we shouldn't begin to be in that. She was a very important figure, mm-hmm. culturally and sociologically. If I go If I go If I go ten thousand miles That's the end of episode four of this season of the VMP Anthology podcast. Uh, And we'd like to reward listeners of this podcast with a special offer from the publisher of Elizabeth Thompson's book, Joan Baez, The Lost Leaf. Anybody who's listening to this right now can get $10 off of the book, which is retailing for $19.95, so you can get it for a price of $9.95, by doing this. If you call 1-800-888-4741 and give them the code JoanBaez21, or email orders at ipgbook.com. Again, give them the code JoanBaez21. They will give listeners of this podcast $10 off Elizabeth Thompson's wonderful book, Joan Baez, The Last Leaf, which, as you've heard, she put a lot of work into and we used as a, a real resource for making this podcast and for when we were deciding which Joan Baez record to include in this box. 
So again, yeah, just call into 1-800-888-4741 or orders at ipgbook.com and give them code JoanBias21. You can get $10 off of this book. We're all still locked up in quarantine. Hashtag read more books. So go and go and get that. Listeners of this podcast, let them know we sent you. This season of the VMP Anthology podcast is written, hosted, and produced by me, Andrew Winnestorfer. It's executive produced by Amelia Sutliff and edited by Poroma Chakravarti. It was recorded in my basement in St. Paul, Minnesota, so I need to extend a very special thank you to Arthur and Remy for being very, very good boys and not being noisy while I was recording this. Another special thanks to Elijah Wald and Elizabeth Thompson for getting on Google Hangouts and talking about old folk music with me. We'll see you next episode when we cover Buffy St. Marie. And as always, I leave you with this. Listen to more Dave Van Ronk.